Good morning, and welcome to Living Way Church as we are learning to do church online. Throughout the history of the church, there have been times that the people of God were scattered for one reason or another, but they have always found a way. Today, in April 2020, our way is via streaming video. I praise God that we have this available to us that we might still gather as the body of Christ. Today we are going to be starting a new series entitled, A Generous Life. Right now, more than ever, people are acting in very selfish, self-centered ways, and we can have a tendency at times out of fear to act similarly. I'm hoping that through this series, our small church is able to show this world that it is better to give than to receive, that we are willing to serve those who are perhaps forgotten by our society. Each one of us has been blessed by God in very specific ways and we are called to pass those blessings on. We have been blessed to be a blessing. I want to start this morning with a story, a story of generosity beyond what we might consider the norm. It is the story of a man named Arland Williams. On January 13, 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington International Airport in freezing weather. The plane was unable to gain altitude and crashed into the 14th Street Bridge. It then continued forward and plunged into the icy Potomac. There were 79 occupants on board that evening. The tail section broke free in the crash and floated upon the icy waters. As the front of the plane containing 73 occupants sunk into the icy waters, there were six passengers within the tail section of the plane who survived the crash. They were forced to enter the waters as the tail of the plane sunk. Some 20 minutes after crashing, a helicopter arrived to rescue the survivors. After getting one man to safety, the helicopter threw a life ring to our man, Arlen Williams, who immediately gave it to the passenger next to him. When the helicopter came back for a third time, he did the same thing again and again. When the helicopter came back a final time, Arlen was dead. He'd used his last ounce of strength to save a complete stranger. Arlen did know these people, did not know these people, and yet he was willing to sacrifice himself for every one of them. His act of generosity is what Jesus called the greatest act of love, to give your life that someone else might live. Today, we are going to look at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, and Paul's acts of generosity as he is heading towards what he believes to be his death. This is the beginning of Paul's third and final mission trip. It will, I believe, last longer than Paul had originally anticipated. Our passage begins in verse 17 and reads, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Paul finds himself in the small town of Miletus, and he sends for the elders or the pastors of the church in Ephesus. The elders had typically been men whom Paul had appointed to oversee and care for the church as he went from one town to the next, planting churches. <clears throat> In verse 18, Paul begins what looks to be a defense of his ministry. This is because he knows that when he leaves, 
there will be those within the group who will rise up and seek to discredit him and his teachings, and thus lead the church astray. We will see that in a bit. But first, let's look at the next several verses. When the elders arrive, he says to them in verses 18 through 19, he says, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Paul had lived with the church in Ephesus for three years, seeing it grow and built up in Christ Jesus. This is his record. Paul was an extremely educated man in the scriptures, which for the time would have only been the Old Testament, as well as what he had been taught by the apostles. Even still, Paul doesn't go to them with only, in the, with only the intent to teach them the great truths of theology. If you read much of Paul's writings, this was deeply important for him. But more than this, his heart was with them. He had wept with them, and he had prayed with them. He had suffered physical attack from those hostile to the church of Jesus for them. Paul was only able to endure all of this because of his posture towards Jesus Christ. It was one of humility. He humbled himself before Jesus and did without wavering all that he was asked. Philippians chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 reads, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being contempt in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Puts a bit of a different twist on Philippians 4.13 for many of us, doesn't it? You will be able to do all things, though, through Christ who strengthens you, so long as you humble yourself before him and do his will. Paul continues and says in verses 20 and 21, he says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And then later in verse 27, he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Being called to be a pastor is no light thing. You stand before the very people of God and proclaim his word. I'm just saying, you better not mess it up. I worry every time I sit and prepare a sermon that I will one day stand before God for the things that I have taught. And, will, and he will ask me, what did you hold back? What did you choose not to teach because you knew that people would not like what they would hear? Too often today, much of the church doesn't truly know who God is because they were only taught what they wanted to hear. They hear that God is love and that he loves all of his creation. This is true. But just as Paul preached God's mercy and grace, he also preached his wrath against sin and the need for the people of God to repent of that sin. Our need to turn from our sins and turn to the mercy of God or his wrath will be made evident. However, much of the church today never sees this side of God. That is because so many have chosen to skip over that truth of who God is. 
because so many only want to hear about the cheerful, loving grandpa in the sky who just loves everybody. Folks, he's not Santa Claus. He is the creator of all things, and those who sin against him and his creation will have to pay a price. And so we will strive, just as Paul, to preach the whole counsel of God. Paul continues in verses 22 and 23, and he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul knew that eventually his call would not only lead to greater suffering, but also to his death. Nevertheless, Paul is being driven by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Paul does not resist the Spirit. Instead, he obediently listens and permits the Spirit to rule over his life. And so Paul states in verse 24, he says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul was telling these men, his friends, that no matter what may lay ahead, he was not afraid. It was his call to go. It was his call to answer. It was a call from Jesus Christ laid before him on the road to Emmaus. And so Paul made the ultimate decision, which was to not guard his life. Can we say similarly? Can we say with Paul, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. I'm not sure I can always say this. I'm not sure I can always say that I would willingly walk towards my possible death in order to preach the gospel of Jesus. I know that a lot of preachers say they would. I have said such in the past. I pray that I would do so, but I do not know. I have not been called as such, and so I cannot in arrogance say I would do something that has not been tested. I do not know. Paul was a truly amazing man. He cared about little else other than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why he's able to write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. It is this sentiment that leads Paul in verses 25 and 26 to say, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Paul is here stating that what he needs to accomplish in Ephesus is done. And then he alludes to a prophecy in Ezekiel 33:4 when he says, which says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. It reads, then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. He is telling him that he has preached the whole counsel of the word of God. All that is necessary for them that they might be saved, they know. Their lives and the lives of those to whom he has preached in Ephesus are now in their own hands. They must now choose Jesus. Then he shifts gears with a very stern warning. The warning begins in verse 28, and he says, 
Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He warns them that they need to watch over the church. The Holy Spirit had called them to be shepherds of the church, to be pastors. Then he reminds them of the significance of this calling. This is not their church. They are not in charge of the church. They do not ultimately lead the church. The church, Paul says, God paid for with the death of his own son. Jesus died that the church might exist. Jesus is the great shepherd of his flock. Pastors are called to follow him and to lead by his direction through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Paul then continues in verse 29 and 30 and he writes, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is for me at least one of the most difficult warnings to read. And I have seen this very thing happen where men have come into the church with their own agendas and impressing for the church to look the way they imagine, the way they desire, they've hurt many people. A good example of this is some of our most prestigious secular universities in America. Harvard, Princeton, and Yale were all started as evangelical Christian seminaries. Some of you may have not even known that. Every one of them were at one time committed to the inerrancy of scriptures. And now they've abandoned all of that. Just look at the churches mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. None of those exist today. They have all come and gone. And I believe that God chose to bring them to an end. Paul isn't worried about sheep dressed in wolves clothing. They can do damage to a church, but not nearly as much. That's because everyone sees them for what they are. This is kind of like the wolf in the children's story, The Three Little Pigs. And so long as the pastor has done a good job building up the flock in the word of God, they will stand firm on that foundation, just as the pigs did. Instead, here he echoes Jesus' concern in Matthew 7, verse 15, where Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. It's not the secular world that the church needs to be worried about. We know, already know exactly what they believe, and it's not Jesus. Instead, this is the story of Little Red Riding Hood. The wolf sneaks in right through the front door and says, they're Christian. And usually, in fact, they're the clergy. They're elders. They're ones who work their way to become elders. Historically, this has always been the case. It wasn't ultimately the Philistines or the Syrians or the Babylonians that were the greatest, greatest threat to the nation of Israel. Instead, they were the most obvious threat. It was all the false prophets who were in the midst of the people that proved the most dangerous because they would take the word of God and twist it and lead the people astray into idolatry. Unfortunately, times has not removed this threat thousands of years later, and the church now struggles still with the exact same problems. 
the problem now is propagated by church leaders and those training those church leaders who deny the historical reality of the resurrection and the cross, who deny the very essence of biblical truth. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and he says, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. The lure to love this world and the things of this world is great. Where were the Ephesians? Paul was all alone at this when he writes to Timothy. Later in the book of Revelation, in fact, we see Jesus tell John to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he writes, Yet I told this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus is rebuking the church here in Ephesus for leaving its first love, for forsaking Jesus. In spite of these warnings, the church in Ephesus is no more. None of the churches in Revelations chapter 2 through 3 exist to this day. Jesus has removed their lampstands. Paul uniquely understands what is on the line. And so he says to them in verse 31 that he had warned them night and day with tears. Paul now moves on to his concluding remarks. And in verse 32 he says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. First Paul commits these pastors to God, and then to the word of his grace, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He states that the gospel can build them up. The gospel of Jesus Christ has the innate ability to build up a believer. This is why I believe we should preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and to even to ourselves on a regular basis. More than anything else, the simple practice would ensure that we, his church, here, now, does not forsake its first love, our Lord Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ also gives to each one of us an inheritance that is guaranteed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot imagine the day we stand before Jesus and in his glory and grace, he blesses us beyond measure. What is this blessing? No one really knows. All I can be certain of is that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind conceived that things that God has prepared for those who love him. So, we must continually preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul continues and says in verses 33 and 34, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Even though Jesus stated that those who preach the good news should receive an income, Paul chose never to do so. So, to be paid as a pastor is a good thing. They have families and needs that must be cared for. Paul, however, made the personal choice as he was planning churches to never be a financial burden on the churches as they were first growing. This is why many church planners today are what we call bivocational, just as Paul was. We, in essence, work two jobs. In verse 35, he continues and says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Jesus reinforced this idea that Paul is speaking of here by saying in Luke chapter 6, verse 30, Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Paul also writes similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How does this view of generosity fit with our cultural response today in the midst of COVID-19? On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you think you've done so far? You can comment below. I'd love to see where we all stand. I will. Then in verses 36 through 38, we have Paul's final moments with these pastors recorded. In verse 36, it says that when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. The first thing he wants to do for them as he prepares to leave is to pray for them. Finally, in verses 37 and 38, we read, They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Social distancing was not a concern then, apparently. It's truly amazing to see the love that these men had for each other and their genuine willingness to express that love amongst one another. Paul has poured his life into these men for three years, and they have grown very close to one another. And now they are grieving, not simply because of his departure, but what he has said is his impending death. Paul, in his farewell to the Ephesian elders, uses his, himself as an example of what a generous life looks like. He cites how he lived with them the entire time, withstanding trials that could have sent many away while staying true to his mission of sharing the gospel, giving himself to them through exhortation and tears, and supplying for his own personal need through his own labor. The key to Paul's generous life is seen in verse 24 where he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. How gener generous are we in our own generosity? There are times that I really do well, and then there are other times. How different would our generosity be if we, like Paul, considered our lives worth nothing? But our only aim was to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus had given to each and every one of us. The greatest act of generosity ever seen by man is when Jesus gave his own life that we might live. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the free gift of God. 
1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. John 15.13 Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Matthew 28.19 Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How different would the world view Christianity if we lived our lives with the example given in these verses? How different would we be if these verses were true for every day of our lives, if we were willing to sacrifice our lives for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he may be made much of us? Let us pray. Father, we come humbly before you and ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would cause us as your church to be a generous people, Help us to see our lives as being owned by you and you alone. Jesus, speak to us and help us see that which you would have us on mission for. Holy Spirit, sanctify our hearts and draw us near to you. Cause us to become one body and of one mind and of one mission to make much of the gospel and less of us. Help us to preach Jesus and Jesus alone. And now may the God of peace who taught who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed that you might be a blessing.